Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to the Living with Power Hope podcast. I'm Lena Evajemra, and as usual, I want to welcome you. It's so great to be with you. Uh, we have been enjoying such a great time doing the Dear Lena podcast, and as you've already gotten used to every so often, we are dropping some amazing conversations with some amazing people, and I'm really looking forward uh, to the conversation we're going to have today. So I want to, first of all, before we get into our talk, just let you know that you can subscribe to the podcast. I hope you've already done that. If it's your first time joining us, hey, welcome. It is uh, a great uh, time to be with you because there's so much to talk about. There's just a lot going on in culture and so much of, we talk of, of what we talk about here on the Hope Podcast pertains to life and faith and God and culture and things that, you know, just small coffee talk. And so I hope you've enjoyed a lot of our conversations. Um, my friend Carly, who I've met through this ministry, was the one who introduced me to today's guest. And we've actually never met in person, so I'm really excited to hear more of his story. Um, but her um, hope was that we would connect because both Rob and I are really passionate about hope. In fact, Rob Morris is our guest today. He is the founder and CEO of Love 146, and I'm sure we're going to hear the story of even that name in a moment. Uh, his vision is to end child trafficking and exploitation. As a pediatric ER doctor myself, Rob, I can already tell you I'm excited about hearing uh, how you're helping save children's lives. It's really been the focus of my life professionally and, of course, um, just, just such noble work. Uh, I know it's not easy work, so we'll hear the story in a minute, but but Rob spends his time talking about defiant hope, which are two words that just are amazing. I want to hear more about all of this. Rob, you've been all over. I see that you've spent some time on Mercy Ships. You've uh, been featured on, boy, everywhere, CNN, Freedom Project, Forbes, even Alec Baldwin's Here's the Thing. That sounds exciting. So welcome to the show, Rob. Yeah, thanks for having me, Lena. I appreciate it. Yeah, so you uh, were just telling me you're in Connecticut, which uh, is uh, sort of an unusual place for a lot of ministry to happen for some reason. I haven't met a lot of people in Connecticut. How'd you end up there? Well, I mean, it's a bit of a long story, but uh, to make it brief, I mean, I'm originally from New York, born and raised in New York, spent most of my life in New York, and then um, uh, moved down to Texas, spent about eight years down in uh, Texas, and then moved up to uh, back up to the Northeast. We missed the Northeast. Um, it was too hot in Texas, and so wanted to come back up to the cold New England area and move to um, move to Connecticut. And um, yeah, planted ourselves. What was your background? It, like, what was your career, or did, have you always sort of been passionate about doing nonprofit work? Which yeah, so I. I actually, I, I was a, a youth pastor in New York um, for some time and then um, left uh, the ministry there, went down to Texas and joined up with um, an organization called Youth with a Mission and then oh. uh, moved from Youth with a Mission into Mercy Ships. And I worked with Mercy Ships for some time. Um, and then after... Uh, were we you left, like on, on the boat or were you sort of in the so office? No, I, I, I led training schools at their international training center, which was in um, uh, which was in Texas. Um, and I did a lot of teaching and speaking on the ships. Um, gotcha. so yeah, so I had, you know, had an opportunity through missions work was exposed to, um, yeah, the needs of the world and, and especially through an organization like, um, uh, like mercy ships. And that was, that was life transforming to say the least. Um, and then, um, you know, your, I, I mean, even stopping you right here, like what was, what did you feel God's call in your life was at that time, even going into the youth ministry? Like, did you feel like God had you teach the Bible or inspire young adults or? Yeah. I mean, I, I know the change that, um, happened in my own life because of the mercy and grace of God and wanted to be a part of that, um, in, in other people's lives as well. And then I think with, um, 
the move down into um, missions and specifically humanitarian type work like Mercy Ships does, um, that was an exposure to something that went be- beyond anything that I had imagined. My my picture, uh, you know, back in the day when I was a youth pastor of missionaries or missions work was sort of that thing that happened on Sunday night where you'd bring in the missionary that, you know, and they would show it at the time I thought were like these really slow, you know, slideshows of their work, you know, and it was like, <laughs> yeah. you know, what is all this about and everything, but then actually getting immersed into um, uh, the needs of the world and specifically amongst the poorest of the poor and the most vulnerable just opened my eyes to, um, to so yeah. much. So and, you, the Mercy Ships pretty much for people who don't know, like basically it's a boat that goes into the, some of the hardest places and provides medical and dental care. Is that correct? That, that's absolutely correct. Yep. Yep. And again, get you, you're, you go beyond what, um, uh, what you're, your picture has been most of your life, especially living in, um, in America. I mean, one of the, one of the big eye opening things, and this sounds so naive, right. Was the idea, was the understanding of being exposed to the needs of the world that, well, God's not an American. Wow. That was a surprise, right. To see that. And it's like, you think that shouldn't be, but that was, that was, there was a lot of reality checks along, uh, along the way, but especially being exposed to, um, the most vulnerable and the needs of the most vulnerable. It was, it was eye-opening and transformed really my, my relationship with God and even how I saw um, God. And, and um, yeah, that was, that was it. So how did you, yeah, talk about that transition. So you ended up leaving Mercy Ships in order to start your own nonprofit? Yes. Well, I, we went, we moved up to um, New England. We were actually going to plant a youth with a mission work in New England um, and then also a church. And in that process, I mean, my, my wife and I specifically have always had a, had a heart specifically for, for vulnerable children. We have, um, mm-hmm. we have seven kids, our five youngest are adopted. Um, and um, so we've always sort of had this bent in that direction. We care about children and specifically vulnerable children. Mm-hmm. And so in the process- How old are your kids? Um, man, I've got my kids age uh, from 33 down to um, 11. Well, she's wow. she's going to be 11 in, in in about a week. So we've got the awesome. we've got a wide range. Yeah, no, no doubt keeps us busy for sure. Um, uh, yeah, and so um, in so in the process when we moved up here, I was actually playing drums in a band at the time, um, and um, in, and myself and a couple of friends who all had similar hearts for for kids and and vulnerable children specifically, we started hearing about this was back in like 2002. We started hearing about right. this thing called child trafficking, and I was like, "What is this? What? How is this possibly happening?" Um, you know, and and um, and what hu- and and back then 2002, the terminology human trafficking was relatively new. Not a lot right. of people were talking about it. It was terminology that was recently coined to describe um, this crime against human beings. Um, and um, so we just started looking at the this issue, like, what is this? And because of, um, you know, I was playing in a band, I had another friend who was in another band, we had an artist, um, we had these public platforms, and we thought it would be cool to use our public platforms for something more than just the art of what we were doing, um, mm. but doing something that makes a difference in the world, specifically in regards to um, to vulnerable kids. And and so we thought, let's learn about this. And we started learning about it. And, the more, and it's, you know, Lena, it's like the proverbial rabbit hole, right? That you start digging in, and the hole gets deeper and darker the further in you go, and you, right. and we were like, "What in the world is this?" And our hearts were breaking over it. And we started in our research and, and educating ourselves on what it is. Um, we connected with another organization, um, and uh, w- one of my friends, who eventually became one of the, f- the co-founders of Love One Forty Six, um, really d- developed a friendship with the leader of this other organization. 
And the director of this organization said, hey, look, if you really want to learn about this, um, you really need to see it, you know, firsthand. And he invited us on um, uh, a trip to visit one of their operating centers in a Southeast Asian country. And oh. um, and so we went. And while we were there, they were in the middle of an investigation, actually, while we were there. Um, and um, uh, they said, hey, look, we're going in tonight. And what these guys do, they're made up of the organization is made up of criminal investigators and lawyers who, who work in some of these human rights abuse areas. And and um, they said, look, do you want to um, we're going in tonight undercover into one of these places. It was a brothel where uh, they suspected that children were being trafficked. Um, and they invited us in um, with them. They said, look, we're going in tonight. If you want to, you can come in with us. And we would never recommend an organization do this. I mean, this was only right. based on the relationship and the friendship that, uh, and that was based on trust that we had with the director of this organization that they would do this. It's not, that is not common practice. Um, but they said, Hey, we're going in. Do you want to come in? And we were like, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll go. And, um, yeah, it was, so, so they go in undercover, they have undercover surveillance equipment on, they go into these places where it's suspected that children are being, you know, trafficked. When you say children, what do you mean? Under 18 or? Oh yeah. Under 18 minors. Yep. Okay, and but like both, like you're, you're, the bulk are going to be like 13 to 18, or you? Yeah, see I would say I would say the vast majority around that, you know, yeah. mid to mid to late teens. But we right. have now currently in in our care, you know, since you know, again, that was that was 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago. Um, uh, we've had kids as, as under under one in our care. We've had babies. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. Yeah. So it's, I mean, that's not typical, but we have had very, very young, like. But I think the age is also becoming lower and lower with time. Is that, is that a fact or is that just. I don't know if it's, I mean, we've seen, we've seen the age um, actually plummeting specifically in our work in Southeast Asia. Uh, Not so much here in the United States. It's still around, you know, mid teens kind of thing. But again, it's all, it's all over the board. Um, so you go yeah. in, you, you kind of dress up with them, like you go in and... Well, so yeah, they, they, they basically, they go in undercover, they have undercover surveillance, they pose as customers and they go in and they gather evidence when they feel like they have enough evidence. And sometimes there's it's multiple trips into these places, right? So because they have to, they have, to have enough evidence that they can then present to local authorities and law enforcement. And they actually have to do a separate investigation, oftentimes of local law enforcement, to weed out those that might be corrupt or getting paid by brothel managers or traffickers to look the other way or whatever. So they're actually, in the same time, they're investigating local law enforcement to find those who are actually sympathetic to getting kids out of these situations. Um, and so, um, yeah, so they go in undercover and they, and they gave us these brief instructions on how to pose as a customer. And oh, wow. I mean, it was the, by far the most disturbing experience of my life to pretend to be the mm-hmm. very thing that everything in me is completely and utterly repulsed by. Right. And um, yeah. I remember the last thing they said before we went in, they said, look, if you don't think you can do this or if you think you're going to freak out with what you're about to see, don't come in because we can't risk you breaking character and destroying this investigation that right. has been taking some time to to bring to completion. And we were like, oh, yeah, you know, no worries until we got in there, you know, and then we walk into this place and we find ourselves standing in a room um, looking through these glass windows at these girls sitting in rows of chairs, wearing matching red dresses, having even the dignity of a name stripped from them. They just had numbers pinned to their dresses. And I'm standing on this side of the glass, um, standing shoulder to shoulder with predators who were purchasing these kids for sex. And I mean, in that moment, 
the 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 words of that investigator were going through my head right like if you don't think you can hold it together because everything in me as as a man as a father as a human being was not holding it together right like all the thoughts that rage through your brain in that moment right the the thought of like man i just want to smash through this glass right now and get as many of these kids out of here as we can you know or how many of these guys in this room can we take out all these thoughts like going through your head and we had to refrain from um responding in the way that instinctively you wanted to respond in that situation and and i think the thing that so took my breath away was the looks in the eyes of these kids you know, again, having seven kids of my own, one of the few things that I've learned about children is that if there should be anybody on the planet that has a light on in their eyes, that has that sparkle of life in their eyes, it should be a kid. And when I, what I was seeing through that glass was not that. And, you know, and, and since then, and obviously you being a doctor understand all of this, that, that what trauma can do to the, to a human being, um, is devastating, right? The, the different responses that we we have to trauma experienced, and and so what I was looking at, I mean, these kids that they were they had these blank sort of stares on their faces. They were watching children's cartoons, actually, on these crackling little television sets, waiting to be purchased and abused. Um, and that look, that you know, of that distant look of trauma um, in the in the eyes of these kids was just devastating. And they all kind of had that same kind of stare, except for except for one girl. And I will never forget her. Um, I will never forget her face. My, uh, she was the only one not looking at the children's cartoon. She was staring in our direction through the glass, and there was this look in her eyes that was different. I mean, that's all. I, and I mean, again, I don't know what all was happening in her or what she was thinking at the time. For but from my observation, I mean, it, whether it was fight that I was seeing in her eyes, determination or trauma or whatever it was, I, I, I don't know. But I will never forget that gaze looking looking at us. Um, and I'll never forget her number. Her number was 146. Oh. And, and so even when we began the organization um, and naming the, the organization, what we named it was to remind us that, you know, this is not this is not about issues or causes. This is about human beings. And, and, in, and in my opinion, as as a person of faith, I'm talking about an image bearer of God. Right. And so that's a whole nother ball game, Right. And, and so um, I, I think oftentimes there's so many issues and causes that we can care about. Right. We're inundated every day of a million different issues. And I think sometimes there's even the tendency to dehumanize people when we put them under categories of people. Right. We, we call people, you know, there's groups of people that we we call refugees or trafficking victims or the poor or the homeless. When we put the in front of a group of people, we can sometimes dehumanize them. We forget that these, we're talking about individuals here, you know, and so that perspective for us is really important. So naming the organization after her um, was to remind us that, first of all, nobody should be brought down to a place where they're identified by a number, right? And and then that this is about individual people and all those that she represents. And so, yeah, we left there that night. We, you know, obviously, you know, the, the, the investigation was not complete, um, but we left there really challenged. And you, you, don't, you don't leave a situation like that and um, not do something about it, right? And so that was when the the big work began. And again, as, as a person of faith, I mean, one of the thoughts that I had, I'll never forget it that night when I went back to my hotel is, you know, for years, I've always sort of take, taken great comfort in the fact that, 
hey, we serve a God who never sleeps nor slumbers, right? I've used that in ministry to share with people who's going through something, you know, or whatever. We can encourage people, man, God doesn't sleep nor slumber. After that experience, I have a completely new understanding of why God doesn't sleep at night. I, mm-hmm. I know the kinds of things that keep me awake at night. Um, and um, the thought that I actually leave that place, I don't have to see what goes on behind those closed doors, though I know what happens. Um, but God, who is a God who suffers with those who suffer, um, oh my gosh, it was just the weight of that is just um, outrageous. And so, right. yeah, so that began our journey of like, we was that? How, how long ago? That was in 2002, September of 2002. Oh, you've been doing this for a while. And so, what is, uh, what, is, like, I have a lot of questions. That I want to break down sort of some of, mm-hmm. The practical nature of sort of you know the background of what happens, but tell me what is what do you do at the end of the day? What does Love One Forty Six do? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks for asking it. So, <laughs> so yeah, so in our process of educating ourselves, like we we had no desire like to hey w- let's become investigators. <laughs> this is not this is not what, that's not who we are, you know. And and so we we started just asking questions and educating ourselves and trying to find out how can we be helpful? What can we do to be helpful? We don't want to reinvent any wheels or anything. And so we would talk to organizations like this particular organization who were saying, hey, we know where there's kids right now that can be taken out of these situations, but there aren't enough like legitimate, incredible places where um, they can be, begin their journey of recovery. Um, um, you know, oftentimes back then, what looked like the, the model was like institutional type government run settings you know, where, you know, there'd be this raid, which was traumatizing in and of itself of a brothel, kids would be pulled out of these situations, and then brought to like a government facility that felt like an institution. And then oftentimes, what we were hearing was that most kids taken out of these situations in that way, and then brought to these institutional type settings will run away from the institution and go back to the brothel, because it felt more like a family to them. Wow. Um, you know, and you've also there's there's so many complexities in this, right? You've also eliminated any possible chance of them supporting their family because oftentimes that's what traffickers will hold over these kids, right? Yeah. Sending money home, and so the kid, you know, how, how do I go back home now? I'll be dis, you know, I've dishonored my yeah. family. There's so many complexities, and again, I'm simplifying really a complex issue. Um, but so we were, so we said, okay, so there's a real need here when it comes to you know legitimate, incredible um, recovery recovery opportunities for kids. And, and then in talking with some existing shelters that we did identify as really good and solid places, um, oftentimes we would hear from them things like, hey, we've got great people that work in, in these shelters. They're compassionate. Um, they, they have a heart for kids, um, but they have the equivalent of maybe a fifth grade education. Um, and, and you can imagine the skill level needed uh, to deal with the trauma of children who've been in these kinds of situations where they've been um, a, a brutally abused multiple times a day for years since they were very young. Um, you, you've got to have some skill as a counselor to, to deal with some of those things. And so um, and, and then back then, what looked like the common way that there would be training uh, for these folks who were working in these facilities was that um, – shelters and safe homes in a region or an area would pool their resources together and they would bring in some esteemed child psychologist from the West or professor from the West to come and do a week-long thing of trainings where they would bring all their staff together. They would sit through these trainings and everything. And, um, 
then six months later, there'd be an evaluation of these trainings. And, you know, the, these caregivers at the grassroots level would be interviewed, you know, have, have you been able to implement the things that you learned six months ago in that training when that esteemed professor from the West came and, and, and you know, shared, uh, shared what they shared? And over and over again, Lena, what was being heard was like, oh, no, we had no idea what that person was talking about when they came. Um, but within especially that con- the context of that culture, nobody's going to interrupt the child psychologist or the esteemed professor from the West and say, excuse me, but can you break this down to something that I can understand and and use? And so we thought, okay, so training at the grassroots level is also another um, need. And so in doing that kind of research, we ended up hiring our first expert who is a brilliant um, PhD child psychologist from the Philippines. So she's Filipina, so she understands uh, the culture, but her reputation in the non-government organization world was that she had this gift, if you would, of being able to take the complex principles of trauma counseling, breaking it down to a grassroots level to equip caregivers to do a more effective job today. Um, and so we ended up hiring her. She, she birthed our first aftercare and survivor care program in um, the Philippines. She's done trainings um, all over Asia and Southeast Asia. Um, and she still runs and she's the director, our executive director uh, in the Philippines to this day. And so, and so, so was your, when you started the organization, was your vision to like, once you started learning the details, you, you saw yourself as sort of a group that come in and help with training or like finding homes for kids or oh, what? So, so to care for survivors. So, so our, we have two key programs. One is survivor care. And so we're doing that in the Philippines. We have, um, we have our own safe homes in the Philippines, a, a home for boys and a home for girls. Cause it isn't just something that happens to girls. It happens to boys as well. Um, you, and then you, we also you guys like funded the home and, and such like that's part of the work that you do. Is oh fine. yeah, like- so we built the home, we run the homes, and then we also um, uh, do trainings. We equip other caregivers uh, to do the same. Um, How many kids can stay in a home at one time? We, well, we very purposely keep it um, small so that it feels like a home and not an institution. So I believe we have uh, a capacity of 16 girls at any any one time, and I believe 14 boys at any one time. And then after, even like, like sort of slow you down for a second for a person who might be listening, who doesn't know a whole lot, like other than, you know, we, we've seen taken and, you know, things like that. I mean, I don't mean to be facetious, but I really think like there's a lack of detailed understanding, but like you mentioned some things like a lot of this, like what what happens on the dark side of things, like kids get told or family, families sell their kids or give them up for what is promised to be like money to support them in extremely dire situations. Do they ever get paid or is this a scam? And then eventually the family is like left high and dry. Like, like, and I'm not, I'm just saying like, what is practically happening on the ground? Like when you describe the kid who wants to go back because they're worried about their family, is that like just things they've been lied to because the families are never really paid or in their minds, like what happens there, you know, and in, in yeah. even in the United States for that matter, because I think there's, there, it's, it's happening here too, right? I mean. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, so we, we started in the Philippines and that's where we began our survivor care and then eventually started doing survivor care in the U.S. and then eventually also doing survivor care in the U.K. And then after where doing. Are, like, you had to estimate like where are the 
worst countries, I guess, if you were going to say like that, that this is happening the most in, would you say it's the Far East general area or that? I would actually say that it happens everywhere. And, and I think it all depends on what news stories are hitting the headlines, right? That that's, that's what gives the indication of like, wow, wow. There's a lot of stuff happening in Eastern Europe. Like I was surprised when I, when we started educating ourselves and realizing that, wow, this is actually something that happens here. Cause I always had that impression of like, oh, this is something that happens in places like Bangkok, Thailand, or in Eastern Europe or whatever, but it happens all over the place. And it's like whack-a-mole, right? So as laws are created and those laws are actually enforced, um, it pops up someplace else, right? So so it all depends on-, on And it's uh, driven by but primarily money, not sex. Is that right? I mean- the ultimate goal of whoever runs this is is that they're making a ton it's of money. It's all about making money. Yeah, it's a criminal. It's it's criminal, right? So so it's like, how do I make the most amount of money with the least amount of risk? Is the bottom line, right? And so 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 what what we've seen is even if there's if there's some countries that all that decide to really crack down on the selling of of narcotics, right? Um, yeah. Then trafficking will start, right? Mm-hmm. Depending on, and that's where that's where law enforcement is an important thing, right? As far as a deterrent, um, but it's not the only deterrent. But but again, the, there is no single narrative uh, right. that defines what trafficking looks like because it's all over the place, right? And 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 it happens in different ways. So everything you just described very briefly, those things do happen. Oftentimes, a family the family will you know will be promised the word, "Hey, I have a job for you know that I can I can provide for your uh, your your daughter can work with me in my tea shop in Bangkok mm-hmm. or wherever it might be." There is no tea shop in Bangkok. The family doesn't know that, but they think, "Oh my gosh, this is an answer to our prayers," and their their child is gone. Right? Other times it's absolutely out of desperation. I mean, we've worked with um, a community of, of um, uh, homeless families in um, a particular city in, uh, in the Philippines, and out of desperation to feed six other kids, a family will rent out one of their kids to foreign pedophiles that are coming over to um, prey on the vulnerabilities of, of these families. The common denominator in all of this is, is vulnerability. Right. And, and, and this is a really key thing because you're talking about that's why marginalized groups of people are at the most risk for trafficking. Um, and so you've got I remember back in the day when when I was a kid, uh, our family on Sunday nights, we used to watch this show on TV called Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. And it was one of these safari shows. And I still remember the name of the the, the guy that was like the you know, the main guy on it, his name was Marlon Perkins. And I remember sitting there as a kid and it was, it was terrifying to me when they would do these like, um, shows where they would show like the, a beautiful field, like out on the safari, you'd see these like antelope or some kind of deer like grazing and everything. And you hear the narrator, Marlon Perkins saying, you know, look at these antelope grazing peacefully in this field, but look closely in the tall grass surrounding the field. And the camera would zoom in and you'd see creeping through the grass, a lion, right? And, and I remember as a kid, you know, you'd see this lion and you know that the deer in the field don't see it, but you see it. And you, I wanted to yell through the TV screen, right? It's like, run, there's a lion in the grass, right? And then sure enough, the lion would burst out of the grass, run across the field, and the lion would never go after the strongest or fastest in the herd. The lion is, was able, because it's a predator, was able to spot vulnerability immediately and go after the most vulnerable, whether it was the youngest, whether it was the oldest, whether it was the infirmed or whatever. And the sad thing is, is human beings do the same thing. 
The, mm. the idea that we're no better than the beasts when it comes to that kind of predatory behavior of looking for vulnerability and finding ways to either exploit it, make money off of it, or to harm it um, is just a horrific thing. Um, and so and like, what are the chances of, like statistically, like a per- if a person gets, if a child gets trafficked, like what's the, ch- what's the percent of death and what's the percentage of leaving, you know, like the, the odds that somebody could leave that being rescued like this, like how, what are the odds that you're working against? I would well, assume a lot of kids die. Yeah, I mean, I, that, that's a great question. I don't know if there are any percentages or any research that's actually right. been done right. that is accurate when it comes right. to that sort of data. Um but again, the man, the mandate is there to, for for us to change that, and that's why even after doing survivor well, I guess, care, I guess even like break it, like like yeah, like even I mean, so how many? Like I guess I, a better question to ask, like, would be sort of like how often is a child rescued? Like, are you getting a lot of calls or not? Like, is there like a oh all the time? We we're at capacity all the time. We're at capacity really? all the time. Oh, in fact, that's the hardest. The hardest part of our work is having to say no when we when we're at capacity when we when we're getting a referral and we're not able and we stretch it all then, the time. Like, there's no space. What happens to those kids? Well, oftentimes, like, well, it depends on where. So in the states, that 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 child remains in the child welfare system. Yeah. You know. So so um hard. again, and hopefully we'll get access to services that are appropriate to what they've been through. Right. But but this is where what you're what you're pointing out, I think, is really important. I mean, and again, when you look at the statistics and they're all over the place, but like the International Labor Organization estimates that there's about 40 million people in the world right now that would be um, um, involved that, that are being trafficked and exploited. Wow. Right. And about a third of those are um, are children. And so um, when you look at those statistics, it's really easy to get overwhelmed. And this is where the hope thing comes in, right? Because like, people ask me all the time, how in the world do you stay hopeful? Do you how do you start? keep your head right. straight? And so, I mean, and we even dealt with that with doing survivor care. We started feeling like, you know, it's, it's the story that you hear in social justice sto- um, circles all the time, Lena, when, you know, the, I don't know if you've heard the story about yeah. the bodies coming down the river, right? Where... You know, there's a village on a river and one day, you know, somebody sees a body floating down the river and they pull the person out and the, you know, and, and the person's still alive, but they're injured, right? So they take the person into their home, they take care of them. The next day, more, another body comes and the next day, more bodies and children's bodies. And they start building orphanages and hospitals, taking care of all these bodies, um, which is good work, right? It's the mercy aspect of work, right? And compassion. Mm-hmm. But it would be a really good idea for at some point, somebody to go up behind the bend in the river and find out why are all these bodies bodies floating down the river every day. That's justice. That's the hard part because then you're dealing with systems. And so we, after doing survivor care for some time, we were like, hey, we have this bold and audacious vision, the end of child trafficking and exploitation, but we're never going to end it by constantly just caring for the results of this horrific injustice. We've got to do something to prevent it. And that's when we started looking at prevention. So our two core programs are survivor care and prevention. And the reality is, is the reason why we're doing survivor care is that we're not preventing it enough from having Happening. And so, well, how, um, how do you, where do you start prevention work? So we've got our, we, so we've done some prevention work um, specifically in Madagascar and Africa and in Liberia, but then our core prevention like in the school system, like where yeah, do you... so, so going into communities, educating families and teachers and people who work directly with children in communities and educating young people on how to, how to stay safe. 
um, and how to know that, hey, you, you have the right to your own, that, that to, to say no, or to when somebody, and this is what it looks like when somebody offers you a job or somebody says, hey, come with me, or hey, here's the, you, we can prevent that from happening. But our core program of prevention is actually here in the United States. We created a curriculum called the Not a Number Curriculum that's now being, it's a five module prevention curriculum. It's designed to teach youth how to protect themselves from human trafficking and exploitation. It's, it involves not only just information and awareness, but critical thinking, skill development, um, and it's being utilized now in 22 states in the United States in um, public schools, in juvenile justice, with juvenile justice agencies. Uh, it's being used in um, child welfare agencies. Um, and it's been a really powerful thing. And so equipping young people on how to first recognize their own vulnerabilities that, hey, that older boyfriend that seems to be like the, your, your Prince Charming, but is now asking you to do, hey, this is what this is. And this is what that looks like. And then recognizing that, hey, when you're going through something, it's probably not a really good idea to go onto your social media feeds and start sharing with people all the stuff that you're going through. Because these guys, these people are trolling that stuff all the time and looking for vulnerabilities. They'll reach out to you, try to befriend you. I mean, all of this stuff, the grooming that takes place you know, online. It's it's because, yeah, you, you think people, like in this country, let's pick on the United States for a minute. I mean, you think that there would be sort of a, like I can imagine it would be a young age where they would be had. You'd feel like most teenagers don't they like why is there such a lack of obvious understanding of some of those typical schemes that you hear on you know you'll watch 2020 or something and you'll be like what like how do you not know that and and you have to dig deeper probably i mean there has to be such a need to want to be loved and i mean there has to be more than just not knowing where this trail is going right it's almost like watching a horror movie sometimes and you know like don't go in that room right, you, know, right. you think everybody would know right and exactly so challenging sometimes to be like, how did they fall for that? And yet there must be even a deeper need, maybe a lack in the home or so. I don't know. I'm just well, suggesting. Again, it's, like, it's, it's vul- I mean, we all have vulnerabilities, right? And right. first being aware of our own vulnerabilities is so crucial, especially at a young age, right? Of understanding what those things look like. So even insecurity or, or, you know, um, uh, family issues that are happening. I mean, we, we find this a right. lot, you know, uh, look at, I mean, as far as one of the vulnerable communities, the LGBT community, right? So right. you've got kids that come out and, and their parents, re, you know, kick them out of the house or reject or, or, or what rejection looks like. And I'm going to run away or, you know, runaways, all obviously the vulnerability that's, that right. um, exists well, there. And, right, 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 right. So those vulnerabilities so, so are like, what people play on. Yeah. Like, so, so how do you, like, say you're living in the United States. Like, I, I remember being, when I was in the city, like, and now I live in the Burbs in Chicago, but like, you'd hear about, even in the Burbs, there's been stories of like sex rings that have been you know, found out, but very networked and very prominent. And and sometimes in areas that you would be surprised, like, I feel like it's happening under our noses, but most average American aren't thinking about that, right? They think, well, my community's safe. Like, so there's a layer where you're educating the students and that's what you're doing and it's awesome. But how do you educate even us? Like, how can we pay attention? Yeah, I mean, I mean, and we've got, I mean, if you, our website is full of resources, parent resources on how to keep your kids safe. Um, we've got resources for young people. We have online safety guides, how to actually stay safe online. Being aware is, is a huge thing. But part of it too is, 
Um, I, I think we're we're attracted, you know, especially in America, we're attracted to like you mentioned before, Taken, you know, the Liam Neeson thing. We're attracted to that story, right? Of like, wow, this is what it looks like. It's the white van kidnapping, right, you know, right. and, and you hear this narrative. And so that's what people are looking for. That's been one of the problems over the last year with some of these conspiracy theories that have come out and everything about, you know, Pizzagate or there's these elite cabal of, you know, of Satanists that are, you know, and, and all, right, so you're right. looking for the big sensational thing. And so you're missing it when it's actually a local teacher that's in your kid's school that's grooming your kid or an older boyfriend or somebody online that's reaching out to your kid through their Facebook um, or or a neighbor or a family member or a minister. Mm-hmm. Right. So these but these look too normal. They're not what what the narrative, you know, that has been created. So educating people. I mean, we've had we've spent the last year trying to debunk some misinformation so that people aren't missing it. What what might be happening right under their noses because they're looking for something way more sensational or. um yeah, or, or sinister looking when it could look well, actually not like that. There's a difference, though, a little bit between, like, like you talk about, like, like the grooming that happens or abuse. I mean, so when you think about child exploitation under that category, would you think of like typical, like child abuse in terms of like sexual abuse? Whereas, like, and there's the trafficking. I, I mean, I'm, I mean, I know in the United States, obviously, child sexual abuse and child all abuse is so wide. But like, I've always sort of thought, well, maybe in the US, like, I'm, I'm not that naive, like I work in ER, right. But at the end of the day, like you sort of think trafficking doesn't happen to the extent that it does elsewhere. I mean, you, but whereas child exploitation is so massive, but really both and right, I mean, they're both, there's a lot of trafficking happening in the US, correct? Oh, yeah. I mean, we've, we just to give you an indication, I mean, we provide survivor care services um, in the state of Connecticut, and we've provided care to over 500 kids who are either suspected um, victims wow. of trafficking or confirmed victims of trafficking. And you're talking about the little sliver, tiny state of Connecticut and one organization, wow. right? Um, and so, yeah, so it's a, it's a thing here as well. Um, How have you found um, those kids who get rescued how do they how open are they to hope in their oh, lives? Oh man, I mean this is this is the thing, right? So recovery, what does recovery look like? Right? Recovery is is oftentimes a lifelong journey, right? There's no quick fix anything to any of this stuff. But I mean like it, we've learned to celebrate this, what, what to some people would look like small wins, right? So, so I'll, I'll give you an, an indication of, 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 or an example, right? So um, how devastating something could potentially be. Like I've been in, I remember being in a safe home years ago um, where there was a, a girl who had recently been um, recovered from a horrific situation of trafficking. And she spent her days, uh, um, you know, in a pile of dirt at the edge of the safe home property, taking handfuls of dirt and trying to cover herself with the dirt. She just wanted to disappear into the ground. It was mm-hmm. I'm like, what kind of trauma is that? And then and then looking and, and again, it's perspective, right? So it's important because this is about the one. Right. This is one. This is one child um, and and what trauma could potentially look like. But like even just like the small dreams um, that kids have, like we like we we had our um, our director in the Philippines do. She she was doing a therapy session with with our kids there and she had them walk down this pathway through the um, the the, uh, that leads to our home. And she goes, I want you to walk down the pathway and picture your life in the future. What do you dream about? What do you see? And then one, one girl walks down the pathway 
And um, she says, I dream of someday having a birthday that I'm going to reach the age of 18. And for the first time in my life, people will celebrate the fact that I was born. I never had a birthday party. Um, and, but one day, I, and here's a girl who never thought that she would ever reach the age of 18. Her simple dream in life was to reach the age of 18. And maybe somebody would recognize that. Another girl walks down the pathway and she goes, my dream is that one day I'm going to get an education and that I'm going to walk down another pathway at my high school um, graduation and I'm going to graduate from high school one day. That's my, mm -hmm. that's my simple dream. And then a third girl, and this is the one that just shredded me, man. She walks down the pathway. She stops in the middle of the pathway. She closes her eyes and pretends to hold a bouquet of flowers in her hands. And she says, one day, my dream is that I would maybe get married, that someday somebody might love me and value me the way that I should be loved and married, things that we would just take for granted, right? But that these kids dream about it. So one of the first signs of recovery taking place is that when a kid could dream again about their future, right? Because oftentimes when they first come into our care and you say, what do you want to be when you grow up? What are your dreams? They just look at you with this blank stare of like, what does that mean? If I survive today, that's a really good day for me. There's no sense of like a tomorrow or or some future or whatever. And and Lena literally like in in the last like, you know, so I don't know how many years now I've gotten to see that one girl who dreamt that she would, you know, turn 18, turn 18. And we celebrated her birthday. Like there was no tomorrow, man. Um, I got to see a girl who dreamt that one day she would graduate from high school, graduate from high school, then go on to college, getting a certificate to enable her to work with kids who've been yeah. through what she's been through. And I got to see a girl who dreamt that one day um, that maybe somebody will love me and value me the way that I should be loved and, and, and valued, um, marry an amazing man who oh. loves her and values her the way she should be loved and valued. So, so I've gotten to see the reality that, you know what, the idea that beauty can come from ashes is not just some sort of nice thing you put on a poster with a waterfall and a forest on it. This is actually real life stuff. This actually does happen. Beauty does come from ashes, but it's a hard, hard journey and it's a hard process. Dude. Any of the kids who are rescued get put up for adoption then or? No, because they, they have families, you know, and, and there, there have been times when a child, it's not safe for a, for a child to go back to their family. And so they stay with us. Um, wow. But, but some, you have a lot of issues when it comes to um, uh, identity. If, I mean, these are kids that do not have birth certificates. I'm talking about in other countries, not necessarily here, here in the U.S. But the goal is to get a child back into their family if that's possible. So counseling often happens even within the family unit, right, of me, oh, being okay. able to be prepared from your perspective like meaning if you get found out like i'm guessing your homes are are secret you know like they're hidden could mm -hmm. you in danger yeah we've had we've had we've had some precarious situations in the past um take place that we've had to be really careful of i mean our home just so you know i mean our our the the safe homes that we have um in the Philippines, we do not have safe homes in the U.S. What we do is we provide um, wraparound services with social workers here in, in the U.S. because there's been a real move in child welfare away from shelter-type congregant care settings, um, knowing that that's not necessarily the best possible way for um, for recovery to take place. And so, right. but in in the in uh, Southeast Asia where we do have um, uh, our homes, um, we have. 
I mean, our homes have a 10 foot high wall around the entire property. On top of that wall is razor wire. We have surveillance cameras. Um, we have 24 seven armed security. This is not your typical orphanage. The, this, these children were somebody's property at one time, you know, and, and so they're those people sometimes come, come looking for. Um, and and I'd be nervous to go back to my house if I were like, you know, like you, at least there you have guards and stuff, but like if you, these kids were sent back to their homes. Yeah, I and, and that, and that's the, that's part of the process. When I say that recovery takes a long time because recovery isn't just the child's journey. It's oftentimes the family's journey and trying to make sure that we're not putting a child back into a precarious situation where that vulnerability is still going to be there or potentially be even worse. And so it's a, it's a very complicated, long process for sure. How do you integrate, like, do you, can you talk about faith and God in these settings, uh, both internationally and here, or are you restricted? Yeah, not so much here. I mean, if, if conversations are, if, if conversations like that come up with our social workers and stuff here, obviously they, they can. Um, yeah. There's not, obviously there's not a proselytizing type situation that, um, that happens. But in the Philippines, for instance, we have a chapel in, on the property in the Philippines. Um, faith is a very important part of, of the children's uh, journey there. Um, you know, the Philippines is, is a Catholic country. And so you've got religion as, as, you know, uh, a core of who, who folks are. And so it's a very natural thing to take place there. And so there's Bible studies that um, happen on the property for those that want to attend and all the kids do because they love it. Um, and, um, yeah, so that, that does exist, uh, specifically in the Philippines. How do you personally reconcile sort of this idea? I would imagine this comes up like, where was God, you know, in those years? Oh man, that's boy. Oh boy. That's, that was one of my big, big raging questions, right. Of, of Mm -hmm. like, God, where, where are you in, in all of this? And I mean, my, my simplistic understanding of what I, what I've grown to understand more and more of, of God is that he is with the suffering and, um, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and, and the challenge then is, is for me to join him there. Right. And so uh, it's, it's funny because I remember years ago, I was reading through Isaiah and I got to Isaiah 59 and I used to think Lena, that nothing could shock God, right? He has seen it all, right? He has seen it all. There's nothing that could astonish God. Right. And then I found one passage and it's in Isaiah 59 where there is something that astonishes God. The creator of the universe can be astonished. And what's so crazy is it's not what I had thought that it would be. Like I would think the idea that human beings would commit these kinds of atrocities against the most vulnerable amongst us, against children, that that would shock and astonish God. But no, he says, that's the stuff that breaks my heart. In Isaiah 59, he says, I, I, I look and injustice is happening everywhere and truth is being trampled in the street. And he's going on and on. And all of Isaiah, you see him talking about, you know, the fatherless, the widow and injustice. He's raging against injustice. Injustice, I felt like I missed out on that somehow in my most of my Christian life. I saw it as some side issue, a specialty issue to God. And yet it's his beating heart, right? I mean, it's like, this is what God requires of you to do justice, not to talk about it, not to think about it or read about it, but to do it. But somehow I never heard much about the the necessity of doing justice. And and in Isaiah 59, he's like going off about, you know, injustice. And then he says this, and he goes, I see all of this happening. And I looked for somebody to intervene. And I was astonished that I found no one. And I, man, when I read that, it was like somebody hit me with a hammer of like, man, 
I don't want to astonish God by my inaction or my disobedience when it comes to doing justice. If he requires this of me, I want to be in the in, in immersed um, in, in the middle of it and everything. And so, yeah. And so, go, I mean, going back to your question about hope, I mean, when, when we attached the word defiant to the word hope, it was very intentional. Right. Like, like to me, like yeah. I've had some people say, oh, Rob, you're the most optimistic person I know. And it's I don't know how you do it with the, the work that you do. Your head's buried in some of the darkest stories imaginable. How are you so optimistic? And you know what? I am not an optimist. I'm going to I'm going to let you in on a secret. I wish I was. I envy optimists, but I can't be an optimist. I've seen too much. Right. And right. so um, and I'm not anti optimist either, right? But but I think sometimes optimists do have a tendency to move into denial at times, right? Where there's this like, yeah, it's bad, but everything's going to work out, out okay. Everything's going to be okay, right? And and I don't think that's necessarily always the case, right? So hope is a little bit different, and especially if it's a, if it's tapping into defiance, where hope is not passive like optimism can be. Hope is 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 more active, um, in in that like. I often say that if, if I had gotten a dollar for every time that I heard the word defiant attached to my life growing up, um, man, I'd be able to fund the work of Love 146 forever, right? I heard it from school teachers, my parents, you're such a defiant young man. You're, why are you so defiant? Why are you so... Now that I've attached that defiance to hope, it's paying off in spades because my hope is an act of defiance against what looks like growing despair, growing cynicism in the world. Um, it's, it's an insistence that that's not the whole story or has to be the whole story. And that potentially by my action, this horrific situation can change. There's a, mm -hmm. there's, it's an act of defiance against what feels like a growing storm and a darkening sky of saying, I insist that this doesn't have to be the end of the story. It can change and I'm going to do something about it and then jumping into that. So, um, and the crazy thing is we learn about defiant hope from the kids that we work with. For, for some of our kids, when they wake up in the morning and choose to live another day, that is an act of defiant hope. How could we not do the same? So, yeah, that's where I land on that. Your, um, we're coming here to the end. I want to sort of move people to your organization a little. A couple of things. First, are you supported completely by people's gifts and donations? Yep. So we do have some grants. We have some foundations. We do have some government funding. Um, but a, a good portion of the funds that um, that fund our work come from individuals. Yeah. And, and Where can people find out how to donate or how to find out more about your work, school curriculums, these sort of things? Yeah. So all of our resources, all of that is uh, you can find at our website, which is love146.org. And it, everything is self-explanatory when you get there. Um, you could jump into that. And if, you know, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's important. It's important. It's meaningful work. For yeah. Even now, I mean, I, I look forward for people to come into your site and seeing how they can engage and, and help in any way possible. Uh, let me ask you this. What's your vision? Like, what do you, what do you still hope to accomplish? You've been doing this a long time. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I mean, bottom line, our vision is a safer world for children. Our vision mm -hmm. is the end of child trafficking and exploitation. I know that people have said when they see the numbers and they see the statistics and all that, they that I've been called naive. I've been called idealistic and all of that. I, I don't think it's idealistic or naive. I think it's audacious. And at the end mm -hmm. of the day, it's only people of audacity that change the world. You know, when you, it's when you think hard. of, when you, yeah, when you hard, think, right? I mean, yep, think about so much of what Jesus says about hurting kids and you go on. I mean, there's so much scripture to support your vision um it's awesome i um i love what you're doing and actually i know we're joking but 
I, I love that you've been doing this for so long. I think people get burnt out and in, in this type of work. And I think the the faithfulness that you've had is its own, I mean, it's just its own testimony of, of a God who's supporting you and giving you the strength to keep going. And I, I, well, I thank, thank Holly for connecting us. This has been a very just, um, I, I feel like you, you've given us just a little bit of the tip of the iceberg to get our minds around this problem that's deep and big, but that, um, that, but that, I think is an opportunity for us to roll our sleeves and say, Hey, what part can I, can I do here? What part can I help in? And, and I, I thank you for that. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity, Lena. Well, listen, it's been great to have Rob Morris. If you've connected with any parts of the story, listen, maybe you're hearing this and maybe you've gone through some difficulties with your own families, or maybe you're, uh, you have a past that you've struggled with some of this stuff. Uh, we would love to pray alongside you and connect you to the right resources and people. So feel free to email me at uh, lena at livingwithpower.org. And uh, we'll be back uh, next week. So if you are interested to find out more about some of the topics here and or if you want to listen to past, past podcasts, why don't you check out our resources? You can go to livingwithpower.org or our app. Download the Living With Power app. Man, tons of information for you to encourage you to get your eyes back on the things that matter in life. And uh, just know that we're praying for you. It's been great to be with you all. and see you all again next week.